passages will come up here. Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, heavenly uh, Father, we do pray in your mercy that today we would hear your voice uh, from your word and that we would not harden our hearts, that we would receive it as the word of the true and living God and change our thoughts and actions uh, to conform to what you teach us. And we ask this mercy because we know that you are the giver of life and we would want to live with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Who wins? Who gets the prize? Who reaps the benefit of hours of gruelling practice? Well, ask crash-avoiding Stephen Bradbury and there's no doubt. Winners are finishers and finishers are winners. It's those who make it to the end who share in the prizes. And that's the same in the Christian life. Believers in Jesus are not believing just for the present, a present in which we can, and many believers do, experience trial and suffering, whether it's ill health or persecution or the grief of abandonment or broken relationships. Many believers suffer those things, and all of us, unless the Lord returns, will suffer the grief of the death of this body. We're not in it just for this life. We are saved in hope, hope of a wonderful end. Now that hope is spoken of in chapter 4 of Hebrews, which is part of the same section as this passage, as sharing in God's rest, his end time rest. In other parts of Hebrews it's spoken of as the heavenly city, the city that is to come. It's the hope of resurrection, of being at home in the new heaven and earth, of coming to the time when all things are made new and there's no longer pain or grief or death. But hope is, of course, for something we don't yet have. And so believers in Jesus, every believer, is on a journey to a goal, a wonderful goal, a great prize, the fulfilment of our hope. But not everyone who starts finishes, do they? I mean, that's true in uh, sport. We've seen it in the Winter Olympics, athletes crashing out. It's particularly true in long races like the Tour de France. I had to get that in even before July. Right? Completely. It's a bit more like life, isn't it, than going downhill. Uh, Then again, of course, going downhill may be life for many of us, actually, as we get older. That's just a personal reflection as, you know, I have to keep getting my eyes adjusted. Uh, But, you know, not everybody who starts completes. It's just true, isn't it? Not everyone who starts a journey finishes. And the history of God's Old Testament people had taught the author of Hebrews this is also true of those journeying to the fulfilment of what God has promised them. Not everyone who left Egypt with Moses made it into the promised land. And our author writes Hebrews, and Hebrews chapter 3 in particular, because he does not want to see that failure to obtain what is promised repeated amongst those who have trusted Jesus, amongst his followers. He wants to make sure that every one of Jesus' followers, that's you if you're a believer in Jesus, makes it to our promised destination our goal. So he's written chapter 3. And because it's important to finish, 
Because the gap between what's promised to Jesus' followers and what we deserve in judgment is unimaginably great, each of us needs to listen to what the author of Hebrews has written for us here. Listen as God tells us in his word how we can be finishers, how those who make it to the end, who receive the prize. And here in chapter 3, God tells us three things we have to do to finish. We have to firstly consider Jesus, set our minds on him, meditate on his greatness. We have to secondly make sure we don't harden our hearts to his word. And thirdly, we need to be alert to the presence of unbelief and prevent it developing in us by encouraging each other. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as the apostle, as our apostle and high priest, or as the ESV puts it, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now the author's speaking to believers, those who trust Jesus, those who've been made holy, fit for the holy God's presence, by Jesus' sacrifice of himself. They are those who share in the heavenly calling, that is, the call that comes from heaven, from God himself in the gospel of Jesus, the call to be his children through faith in Jesus and to share in the salvation that Jesus has won. And he says to believers, and that's to you if you trust in Jesus, consider Jesus, fix your thoughts on Jesus, think about him. The Jesus whose greatness he's been making clear for us in chapters 1 and 2. And picking up on what he said in chapter 2 of Jesus as the faithful and merciful high priest, he reminds us that Jesus is the one believers confess as the apostle and high priest. That is, we confess Jesus to have been sent by the Father commissioned by the Father, the one who brings God's final word to us. And we confess Jesus as the one who brings us to God through his sacrifice of himself, who makes it possible for us to be God's people, to come into his presence, to be able to always rely on his help. This is the core content of our faith, of our confession. And Jesus, he says there in verse 2, was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. So he introduces here a comparison with Moses, another one who's been faithful to God in the service of his people. Now, having just told us to think about Jesus, why introduce Moses? Well, it's to help the readers and us get a sense of Jesus' greatness. And so the importance of then being faithful to Jesus by comparing Jesus with Moses. But why compare Jesus with Moses and not, say, Isaiah or the Emperor Augustus or anybody? Why Moses? Well, firstly, because of the circumstances of his first hearers. They were being tempted to return to Judaism, to the worship and customs established by Moses in the law given to him by God. In fact, there's a continuous comparison throughout Hebrews between the priesthood, covenant and sacrifice of Moses established in the law of Moses and the priesthood, covenant and sacrifice of Jesus. And so the original 
uh, hearers need to get the relationship between Jesus and Moses right. They need to know, in a sense, how much more to value Jesus and what he brings. But it's not just the circumstances of the first hearers. You see, Moses is intrinsically important for anyone who believes that God has spoken in the past through the prophets. You see, Moses is unique. Unique in his role, unique in his relationship with the Lord, distinguished from all the other prophets. No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do against the land of Egypt. And in Deuteronomy it highlights what was especially unique about Moses, and that was his access to God. He's picking up what God had said to Aaron and Miriam in Numbers 12. Listen to what I say. If there's a prophet among you from the Lord, I make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my household. I speak with him directly, openly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Moses was known for his access to God. And the author's not going to criticise Moses. In fact, to get the full force of his point, we have to recognise Moses' greatness. Why? Because the author's going to compare Jesus to Moses to show how incomparably greater than Moses, incomparably more glorious than Moses, is Jesus. And so how incomparably greater is his work and revelation And to feel the force of that comparison, you need to know how great Moses is. The author gives us two points of comparison. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. So he says, Jesus' greater glory can be seen if you think about the relative greatness of a house which a builder has built and the builder. All the glory, all the praise goes to the builder, doesn't it? Well, yes, Moses was faithful in God's house. That is, he is part of the house. And the house here stands for God's household, the people of God. He's part of the house. But that house had a builder, didn't it? As every house does. And the builder gets the glory. That's true in God's house as well. The builder, of course, is God. But in fact, God, he says, is not just the builder of his house. He is the builder of everything. And so the builder here has incomparably greater glory than Moses or any other creature could have. But remember what our author's already told us of Jesus back in chapter 1. Remember how Jesus is addressed. He is the Son, addressed as God. He is the one who's unchanging. He's the one who is the exact representation of God's being. The one who we were told in verse 2 of chapter 1 is the one through whom God made the universe. Jesus is the builder. He is the builder of his house, and all things. He is incomparably greater than Moses. And the author gives us a second comparison. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what will be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son 
over God's house. The greatness of Jesus is seen in his place in God's people. Moses, yes, faithful as a servant, and that's a title of honour in God's house, but a servant. And his role was that of witness, a witness to the final word God would speak, the word he speaks in his son. He, in fact, serves the son in his testimony and is not and never has been his rival. But Jesus is son over God's house. He's the faithful owner and ruler of God's people, the one who directs the whole household. He's incomparably greater. There's Moses, created, servant. Here is Jesus, the son, creator and ruler of the house. And Jesus' people, of course, need to be convinced of his greatness. For it says, we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. What makes us his house? What makes us God's people, those who will rise, those who will inherit the new heaven and earth? Well, it's holding firmly to, never letting go of our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Now, both the believer's confidence and hope are expressions of the greatness of Jesus, of the greatness of what he has done as son. The confidence the author is speaking of is the confidence we have of access to God, of being heard by the holy God, of being able to approach God's throne of grace boldly. You see, confidence, that confidence, is an expression of our trust in Jesus' work as our high priest, that he really has dealt with our sin, that he has made us holy, fit for God's presence. And this access that Jesus has brought through his death is something so much greater than anything the Mosaic Covenant brought. Under Moses... Well, the people were actually kept at a distance from God's presence. And just one, the high priest, could come into the symbol of God's presence, the Holy of Holies, once a year. But believers trusting Jesus can come every day, any time. We show we know Jesus' greatness by holding on to our confidence. And that's not a theoretical confidence but a practical one, witnessed every day by our coming to our Heavenly Father, who is the great and holy, the Almighty God. Oh, and we also show we know Jesus' greatness by holding on to the hope in which we glory or boast. Again, our hope as believers is an expression of our trust in Jesus' work. And so our hope's not some pallid wish about how things, how we hope things might work out in the future. Our hope is something that we want to be known for, that we boast of. It's a motivation for our daily living. It's a reason to give up all now to follow Jesus. And it's something that's sure and certain because the gospel proclaims that God has raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection is certain. And in that resurrection, we know all God's promises now find their yes in Jesus. Confidence and hope proclaim Jesus is the effective and final saviour who gives what no one else can give, who's greater than all. Think about it. Judaism, Islam, secular psychology, whatever. 
They can't give confident access to the holy God for sinners, people who deserve to be driven away from God. Oh, they can't give a sure hope of resurrection to people who deserve to die for sin. But Jesus, the Son, through his death, can. In a world where we're discouraged from thinking about eternity, from having any hope beyond what we can think of ourselves, beyond what we can think we can achieve ourselves, in a world where if people allow for God's existence, he's seen as somehow distant or uninterested or overwhelmingly out there, confidence and hope should characterise Christian believers. From the first day, we believe the gospel. You know that God has sent his son into the world to die for our sins and that having died and been buried, God has raised him from the dead. From the first day we believe that gospel to our last breath, our trust in Jesus should be seen in our confidence and hope. How can you persevere to the end, make it to the fulfilment of that hope that Christ gives us? Well, God's word's clear. Consider Jesus. Set your mind on him. Think about his greatness and the greatness of what he's done. It's worth doing that, isn't it? Because as soon as you start thinking about that, you realise none can compare with him. So when you're tempted to withdraw from Jesus or move on from Jesus or just grow a little bit disinterested or when you're being encouraged to think that Oh, yeah, Jesus was okay, but you've got to go on. You know, real security is found in some other teacher or prophet or Messiah. Stop and do a bit of comparison. Think, if Moses, the true prophet, the liberator of God's people, the giver of the law, the performer of wonders, can't be compared to Jesus in greatness and glory, if Moses can't deliver what Jesus delivered, though he was faithful in what God entrusted to him. No one else can. That's the point. No self-proclaimed prophet can deliver what Jesus delivers, can be compared to him. Muhammad, Joseph, compare. Have they risen from the dead? Have they brought access to God? No, just more human rules that keep you from God. Why trade the son for a false prophet, when even the greatest prophet, Moses, can't compare with the sun. No philosopher can compare. Can their knowledge compare with the knowledge of the one who was there at the beginning and will be at the end? No political messiah can compare with Jesus, even if they promise you heaven on earth. They may bring lots of death, but they have no answer for death. Consider Jesus, he says, the greatness, his greatness. Consider the greatness of the incarnate Son. So you hold fast to your confidence and hope and holding fast come to the goal of your journey as a believer, God's rest. And the Holy Spirit says we must in that journey not be like the Israelites who came to the very edge of fulfilment yet did not obtain what was promised because they hardened their hearts to God's word and so to God. As the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The author is saying that this is what the Holy Spirit is saying. Is saying to believers today. 
You see, he's saying, the word the Spirit moved David to speak to his generation, a thousand years, say, before Hebrews was written, is actually the word the author says the Spirit is still speaking to his generation in the Scriptures and, of course, is the word being spoken by the Spirit to us as the Holy Spirit is saying. Now note that. What the Scripture says is what the Spirit is saying. He's saying to us today. For believers to treat the Scripture as if it's a mere human word is folly. It continues to be God's living word for his people. God speaking to us through his Spirit-given word. And God is warning us in Psalm 95 not to harden our hearts. In fact, that verse is quoted twice. So God wants us to pay attention to it. But what is it to harden our hearts? Well, let's turn and think about the incident that above all else is called the rebellion, the incident that provoked God's sentencing of Israel to 40 years' wilderness wanderings. Israel's initial refusal when they came to the very border of the promised land to enter that land, that refusal recorded for us in Numbers 13 and 14. Let's think about that refusal. You see, the Lord had clearly promised to Israel, Abraham's descendants, the land of Canaan. He had committed himself to give them this land from the time of Abraham, with whom he'd entered into a solemn agreement, a covenant to give him and his descendants that land. And that promise was repeated through their history. It was, for example, because of this promise that at the end of Genesis, Joseph had ordered his remains to be embalmed and made the Israelites swear that they would carry up his remains to the land of Canaan. At the time of the Exodus, God made clear that in faithfulness to his promise, the land of Canaan would be the goal and destination of the Israelites. Verse 17. I have promised to bring you out of your misery in Egypt into the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so there could be no doubt about God's commitment to give the Israelites to this land. It's something they knew. And now the Lord had actually brought them from Egypt to the very border of Canaan. But what do we hear in Numbers 13 and 14? Well, on hearing the bad report from 10 of the 12 spies sent to spy out the land, the people refused to go and take possession of the land God had said he had given to them. In fact, they decided, you see there, verse 3 and 4, they decided that the wise thing to do was to go in exactly the opposite direction, back to Egypt. They insisted, you see, that God would not keep his promise that he was unable to. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land only to let us fall by the sword? They insisted that trusting God was a recipe for death and misery. Our wives and children will be taken in plunder. They rejected and threatened to attack God-given leadership and those who reminded them of God's faithfulness, as you heard. And all this is despite knowing clearly God's promise despite having witnessed the exodus and the destruction of Pharaoh's army, despite hearing God speak to them at Sinai, despite being fed every day by his miraculous provision of manna. You see, hardening your heart 
is not just having a doubt about some aspect of the faith. It's not being uncertain about the meaning of some passage or command. It's not even having little faith. Hardening your heart is knowing God's will and then deciding to do exactly the opposite, despite your experience of God's grace and might. It's knowing God's word and then deciding to substitute your own word for his as your guide, being directed by your will, not his. It's his, as God calls it in Numbers, rebellion, saying, God will not rule my life. God's word will not rule my life because I know better what is best for me and I will do what I want no matter what God has said. Hardening your heart, says God, is treating him with contempt (coughs) by saying that he'll not do what he said, whether in promise or judgment. And that's, of course, saying that The living God is no more than a creature whose word can be safely ignored like the words of other creatures. And this is hardening because God's word is known and deliberately rejected, deliberately turned away from. In speaking in Psalm 95, the Spirit was saying to the author of Hebrews' generation, don't doubt, on the very edge of fulfilment, God's promise to bring you into the land of promise his way through the work of his son. He's saying, don't reject when the very next thing is the resurrection and return of Jesus, God's command to repent and believe in Jesus by going back to Judaism. He's saying, don't know what God commands and like you, they've heard that command of repentance and faith in the gospel and do the exact opposite by saying Jesus does not save. The Spirit was speaking to that generation. Oh, and yes, the Spirit is speaking to us in Psalm 95, saying to us, don't harden your heart. Don't do the exact opposite of what you know the living God commands by turning away from Jesus, abandoning, following him. Don't do that because you're afraid of well, what other people will say or think, like the wilderness generation was afraid of the inhabitants of Canaan. Oh, don't turn your back because you think you know better than God. Know that your life would be safer and more secure and happy by not taking up your cross and following Jesus. Oh, don't do the exact opposite of what God says because you think God not powerful enough to do what he has said, because you've chosen to measure his capacity to fulfil his promise against your ability. The Spirit is saying to us, do not harden your heart by turning away from Jesus. Because hardening your heart is disastrous. They will never enter my rest, says God. So how could such a hardening happen? How could it happen to the wilderness generation who'd experienced so much of God's saving goodness and might? How might it happen to us who've also experienced so much of goodness, of God's goodness and mine. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. 
but encourage one another as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. What gave rise to that rebellion that excluded the people of Israel from enjoying the fulfilment of God's promise? Well, it's their hearts, remember. The psalmist said, God says their hearts are always going astray. Their rebellion came from what the author of Hebrews calls a sinful, unbelieving heart. That's what the author warns us. We must not let develop in ourselves and others. And that is the origin of hardening. Look at verses 16 to 19 again. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, those whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So, what lay behind the rebellion, the sin, the disobedience? What caused them, even though they'd experienced God's power in the Exodus, to suffer God's anguish, to perish outside the promised land? What caused them to be excluded permanently forever from his rest? Verse 19, we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Unbelief, that's what's expressed in their rebellion, their sin, their disobedience. The fact that they did not believe God's word, they doubted God's goodness, they denied his power. You see, that generation had the heart of Adam and Eve, who in the garden doubted God's goodness, disbelieved his word, and so believed the lie. Now, how does such a heart develop? Especially where each day we and they experience God's provision. Each day are guided by God. How might such a heart develop? Well, it's developed by sin. Our hearts, it says, are hardened by sin's deceitfulness. How is sin, any sin, deceitful? Well, think of what you have to believe to engage in any sin. What do you have to believe, say, to lie? You've got to believe that God who says don't lie, you've got to believe that God does not know best. And you know better and that lying will make your life better. Or you have to believe that God's not really powerful. <laughs> Lying's my only choice. That is, you've got to believe that God can't rescue his people. Or you've got to believe, if you're to sin, that God doesn't really care for you. I mean, if he did, he'd want me to enjoy, wouldn't he, the happiness of sexual fulfilment with this person I'm not married to? God doesn't really want me to be happy. Oh, you've got to believe that disobeying God will make you safe and secure, will satisfy you. Oh, and you have to believe that whatever God says doesn't make any difference, that he doesn't really punish sin. Look at all those sinning and getting away with it, that his threats are empty, so why should I miss out? That is, you have to believe that God won't do what he says. Yet every one of those beliefs which are present in any and every sin, every one of those beliefs, is a lie. God made us. He does know best. God is almighty. He can rescue his people. God is good, and what he forbids is for our good. 
Oh, and God will keep his word and exercise a righteous judgment even if he delays. Oh, and sin might make you feel better now. But as the Prime Minister has so wisely observed, it unleashes a world of woe. Sin is deceitful. And it's the deceitfulness of sin that hardens our hearts where we practice sin. You see, to sin is to know what God says, but then because we want to sin, say, want that sexual immorality, it's to know what God says and ignore what God says. So sin teaches you to set aside what God says. Sin teaches you to think, well, you can safely rebel to get in the habit of thinking you can safely rebel. Sin teaches you that you actually don't have to listen to God. So where you know God says don't lie and you choose to lie, you're hardening your heart. Where you know God commands sexual purity and you keep on indulging your lust, you're hardening your heart. Where you know God's, God commands you to forgive those who repent and you refuse, you are hardening your heart. Wherever you know God's will and you don't do it, your heart is being hardened because you think you know better. Where you know what God teaches and refuse to believe it, whether it's about same-sex practice or male-female relationships or judgment, you are hardening your heart, teaching yourself to trust yourself rather than God because you think you know better and that hardening that comes with the deceitfulness of sin will lead to disaster. There'll come a day when you think you do not need to call Jesus as Lord because you've trained yourself to be your own Lord. There'll come a day when you think God's word, the word that alone will raise you from the dead, is impotent and powerless because you've consistently ignored it. There'll come a day when you put your trust elsewhere than in the incarnate son death because it doesn't make sense to you anymore and you've learned that your judgment is sovereign. Oh, there'll come a day when God's patience will run out and all will be lost. There really is a great cost to letting your heart be hardened by sin's deceitfulness in letting a sinful, unbelieving heart develop and the Holy Spirit speaking to us today in his word so that that does not happen to any of us. Listening to God's word, heeding God's word, we'll be on the lookout for that, watching for the development of that sinful, unbelieving heart in ourselves and others. And we will be actively countering its development by doing what God's word says. Encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Encourage one another. Seems so ordinary, doesn't it? That's something our service leaders so often exhort us to do in and after each service. But that's how we can resist sin's hardening. How do we do it? Well, words. Words that speak the truth of the gospel to each other. Words that remind us of the greatness of Jesus. Words that expose the deceitfulness of sin. Words which warn and admonish. Yes, we encourage by words. But not only words, isn't it? We encourage by listening. Listening to griefs, 
listening to perplexity, listening to struggles, and at the right time pointing to Jesus, who's the real saviour, not us. Oh, you can encourage by telling someone you're praying for them and what you are praying for them. You can encourage by showing the helping hand of genuine love, by unsought, thoughtful kindness, that visit, including others, especially the alone in your lives, your families, your activities, and encouraging each other perseveringly and frequently as long as it's called today. Encourage one another daily, it says, as long as it's called today. That today is so wonderful, isn't it? You see, that today tells us that each day, today is a day of opportunity. It's still a day to encourage each other to persevere. Still a day to repent of sin. Still a day to see the danger and change, to get a new heart. While it's still today, we can get ready and renew our confidence and hope in Jesus and be amongst those who make it to the end. Encourage one another. But we seem to be so casual sometimes, don't we, about encouraging each other, where scripture says we should be purposeful and diligent. Some even think they can live a solitary Christian life. Others, that they can go without encouragement, without seeing or talking to their brothers or sisters for weeks. Some think that encouraging doesn't deserve effort or sacrifice. That's playing with fire, isn't it? Where encouraging each other is what God has provided to help each of us reach the end. Where encouraging each other is the way the Spirit tells us to live. Encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. For, and that for is there, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. We have become and continue to be sharers in Christ, partners in Christ, if we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. And that's so good, isn't it, to be a partner of Christ? Christ is the heir of all things. Christ is the possessor of eternal life. Christ is the source of the holiness that allows us to come into God's presence now and forever. How good it is to be a partner in and with Christ. And we are. If we hold on to that core conviction, the conviction we started with, the substance of the faith, the faith we learned in the gospel firmly to the end. See, not about doing getting there, but about believing and then expressing what you believe in what you do. And think, what did you believe when you first believed? When you believed the gospel? Well, you believed that Jesus is Lord, didn't you? And that all authority is his and that he rules and it's right that he rules your life and he has authority to forgive you and to judge. And you believe that Jesus is the loving Saviour who forgives and gives life to all who believe in him. And yes, more, you believe Jesus is the Son who tells us the truth about God and ourselves, more, who assures us in his love and his giving of himself for us that the eternal God loves us. That's the conviction every believer starts with and every believer has to end with. 
the conviction expressed in your baptism. For it's a baptism of repentance, saying Jesus is Lord for the forgiveness of sins. It's a conviction expressed in your daily prayer that Jesus, in forgiving you, has reconciled you to God and opened the way to his presence. It's the conviction that the Spirit gives you in your longing, the longing that cries, Abba, Father, the longing for the fullness of salvation, the resurrection. This is the daily conviction of a disciple, of someone who each day takes up his or her cross and says, not my will, but Jesus' will, for he is the loving Lord whom to follow is life. That's the conviction we must hold firmly to, to the end and encourage each other in. Well, don't let God's word be plucked away from your heart. Make it to the end and make sure your brothers and sisters make it to the end. Help them. So, simple questions. Do you set your mind on Jesus? Do you consider Jesus? Do you keep the truth about him firmly in your mind? Let your mind dwell on his incomparable greatness. Do you probe it? Do you grow in it? Have you given more time this week to think about Jesus than watching television? Even a half hour? Are you letting yourself be hardened by sin's deceitfulness? Doing what you know God forbids. Letting your heart deceive you that somehow what God says, what God commands doesn't apply to you as long as what you're doing makes you feel good. Or are you thinking that you can see something in God's word and think that you know better, you don't have to change your mind? Are you letting yourself be hardened by sin's deceitfulness? See where it leads to. The hardening of heart that God forbids, that provokes his judgment, that will exclude you from his rest. See where it leads to and repent urgently. Today is the day the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. So confess that you're wrong to be doing what God forbids, whatever it is. Confess that you have allowed yourself to be deceived and seek mercy from the living God while it's still today. Because you can, because Jesus is our great high priest. Make sure you make it to the end. Resolve to watch your heart, to take time to read and pray, to lay your life bare before the Lord who searches the heart. And do what scripture says. Encourage each other. Encourage each other to deny sin and think of Jesus. Encourage each other perseveringly, purposefully and daily, it says. So again, think. Who will you encourage today? Your spouse? Your brother or sister who you know is struggling because of their circumstances, exhausted by what they face? Who are you encouraging today? Who will you encourage daily? Because you see, in God's mercy, it is still today. And Jesus is still the apostle and high priest of our confession, the one we can turn to for grace and mercy. He will give you grace to maintain to the end your confidence and the hope in which you can glory, you should glory. He will give you that grace as you heed the word the Spirit speaks to you today. Maintain your confidence. 
Maintain that confidence which you had from the beginning until the end. Think on Jesus, turn away from sin and encourage each other daily. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray in your mercy that we would not harden our hearts, that we would heed this word and amend our lives, that we would turn away from the sin we know that you forbid, that we would think on Jesus and his greatness. And Father, we pray in your mercy that we would be those who encourage each other and so maintain our confidence and boldness, the confidence and boldness and hope that Jesus gives us in his gospel to the end. We ask this in his name. Amen. The music team is